This morning, my, my five-year-old son said, oh, I love this church. My five-year-old son who was right there. And uh, so I thought you might like to know that you have a uh, five-year-old fan in your midst this morning. And I love this church too, and I'm glad to be here with you. Uh, a few weeks ago, Brian started a series on the Ten Commandments. And I imagine maybe for some of you, and he may have gone over this, when you, when you first hear that, we're going to do a series on the Ten Commandments, maybe different reactions or emotions might be stirred. Because if you maybe are new to the faith, or maybe you're here just kind of considering for the first time this thing called Christianity and who Jesus is, when you think of the Ten Commandments, you might first think of sort of people who are bickering about whether or not to post these laws in the courtrooms of our country. You might, like um, like happened to me the other day as I pulled up behind um, a minivan that had all those little figurines of all the people, you know, all the... And then on the other side, it had it had the Ten Commandments turned into a bumper sticker, which I'd actually never seen before and thought actually quite disrespectful. But you might think that if you're new to this, you might think this. It seems like, you know, these are laws that people who are are saying we follow these and we think you should, too. and, And it sort of comes across as sort of a condescending thing. Maybe for others of you, when you think of the Ten Commandments, all you can think of is Charlton Heston. Those of you who are maybe you're younger don't know what that means. The point this morning that we have to make, even before we read this, even before we go into this, is that these laws, these Ten Commandments that were given by God to His people, were never meant to save them. That in fact, these were laws that they could not keep. And you may say, well, that sounds cruel of God to give them laws that He knows that they cannot keep. These laws were given by a God who loves His people. They're given by God who is being gracious to His people to show them the ways in which they are broken. To show them a picture of what the world once looked like when it was in harmony, and then to give them an idea as they hold these laws up like a mirror to their own selves and their own heart to say, we are broken. And what will we do? How will we react to this? These are given by a God of grace. And this is shown even by the first verse that I'm going to read today from Exodus chapter 20 and verse 2. It says that I am the Lord, your God. I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. These are people who already belong to him. These are people who he already brought out of bondage and out of slavery and who tells them, I am your Lord and I am your God. And then he says this. You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless. Who takes his name in vain. We'll save that Hebrews passage for a little bit later. Let me pray and ask God to bless his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, for some of us, all we ever feel is guilt. 
For some of us, all we ever feel is shame that we we see our own sin and we just don't know what to do with it. And we hear that Jesus is sufficient. And yet we live by guilt and we live by fear and we live by shame. And Father, this morning, I pray that through this reading of the law and through talking about what this means. That we would move from guilt and shame, that we would move to freedom that is only offered by the one who fulfills the law. And we ask that through this, that you would be glorified, that the name of Jesus would be high and lifted up. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Most of you may not instantly recognize the name Anthony Lamar Taylor. You, but some of, you, some of you may remember, as I start to recount this story, some of you may remember this story. That Anthony Lamar Taylor was, back in 2001, was convicted of a crime and was sentenced to 200 years to life in prison. Which I always find humorous. I mean, if you're sentenced to 200 years, it either means they, you know, they've misjudged your health or, or they, they really don't want you to get out of prison. And I think it's the latter with this man. So what was his crime? What did he do? Well, basically, Anthony Taylor misrepresented somebody. Must have been important for this crime, for, for this sentence to be so severe. Who did he misrepresent? He misrepresented a man named Eldrick T. Woods. And for some of you, that name does not mean anything either. Who in the world is Eldrick T. Woods? Well, it might sound more familiar if we call him by his nickname, Tiger. Somehow, this man obtained a driver's license, social security card, in the name of Eldrick T. Woods and began to acquire lines of credit from Tiger Woods. And he began to draw on those lines of credit and he began to misrepresent Tiger Woods and began to draw things for himself because of it. It didn't take long before he was caught and sentenced. It didn't help, I think, that he had some prior felonies um, to help make that sentence a little bit bigger. Now, I don't think Tiger Woods is probably in any danger of anyone stealing his name right now, so we could probably move on past him. I want you to ima- but I want you to imagine a scenario with me for a minute. Imagine that you are going to a party or an event that's full, full of a room full of people that you don't know. You're going in and you have to wear a name tag. And wherever you wear a name tag to an event, it always is a little bit awkward because you know it's a room full of people that you probably don't know. And there's going to be a lot of first impression kind of conversations. And I'm going to use somebody specifically in this illustration. I'm going to use Mark Bocker because he's not here. <laughs> and if you know Mark Bocker, one of the elders here, he is a, he is a fine man. He is a defender of the law. He is a faithful husband and a good father. And that's why I'm using him for this illustration. So imagine Mark Bacher goes into this this event, gets his name tagged, fills it out. Mark Bacher puts it on, walks in, and he notices in the room that there's somebody else wearing the name tag, Mark Bacher. And he's going around to every woman that he sees and introducing himself as Mark Bacher, and then going on to make sort of cliche pickup lines and, you know, crude, vulgar things. And Mark Bacher would be, the true Mark Bacher would be horrified, right? Because his name was being 
utterly misrepresented because that is not who Mark is. And yet there's this one who's wearing his name and is going around and utterly misrepresenting who he is. Typically, when we think about this commandment, we think about the third commandment. You should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. I think the first thing that we we usually think about is sort of cursing, right? That we think we shouldn't take God's name and use it as a as a really as a slur in a way that is dishonoring. And of course, I mean, of course, that is true. And of course, that is what part of this commandment is about, is that we don't flippantly use the name of God, that we don't use it even as we speak in a way that is dishonoring to him. But that's not really what I want to talk about this morning, because I think that the deeper idea that lies behind this commandment is this idea of representation. It's the idea that we have been given, really, the name that we have been made image bearers of God. And that we are called to be his representatives in this world. That there is a, there's a, a prayer that Paul prays in Ephesians 3 where he says that he bows his knee before the Father by which every family in heaven and earth has been named. So that we as people who are made in his image bear his name as, as representatives. And so just like you and I would be angry if someone put on a name tag and then went ahead and went and did just sort of absurd things, misrepresenting us. How much more so those who really bear the name of God? How much more so should he be angry? And he says, I will not hold them guiltless. Who misuse my name. Who bear my name and then yet completely and utterly misrepresent who I am who do not bear my image, who do, but distort it. And he says, I will not hold them guiltless. And that's a scary proposition. What does it mean, really, to take up a name in vain? I want to look at that. What does it mean to take up a name in vain? How do we take God's name up in vain? And then how do we respond to this? What do we do with this? What is it? It, the, sort of the definition of to take up a name and use it in vain is to take a name and use it without respect for what that name really represents. So in other words, you use it in a flippant way or you use it in order to get something for yourself. Now, we all, we all understand this, right? We all do this. That we, we do this with one another because we love to casually drop names. That we love to, you know, throw somebody's name out that we may know who maybe is an acquaintance that we feel like invoking their name will bring something to us. And so we do this in, in, you know, in front of, we use certain names sometimes in front of certain groups of people because we feel like those people will respect us more if we use those names. I have a, a friend from college who, after college, moved to New York City to become a photographer, and everyone was like, yeah, right. You know, um, that's, you know, that's a, that's a hard thing to do. Well, he actually became, he's actually done really, really well. He's become really successful. And one of the things, I'm not dropping his name right now. One of the things <laughs> that he gets to do is work with very famous people. And he is very humble about this. 
But myself and our other college friends love to tease stories out of him and, and to hear. And so recently he was working on like Time 100's, uh, Time, Time Magazine's 100 Most Interesting People or Influential People. And he sent us, you know, videos of him and Bill Clinton and him and um, George Clooney and all of these different people. And he told us this story that he was doing a shoot recently. And um, Samuel L. Jackson, you know who Samuel L. Jackson is? I mean, maybe the definition of cool, right? In some circles, at least. Samuel L. Jackson is on the set. This was a particularly hard shoot because of the the subject that they were shooting. And afterwards, Samuel L. Jackson comes up to him, pulls the 357 Magnum out of his belt, hands it to my friend and says, you may need this. Okay, if that happened to me, I would tell that story every day of my life for the rest of my life. Just so you would think of, when you thought of Samuel L. Jackson, you would think of Tim Udodge and you'd be like, he, he is so cool. He is so cool. We love to tell those kind of stories that, we, we use somebody else's name because we want to draw attention to ourselves. We use it to almost sometimes get things that we want. It, children understand this just instinctually. They know how to do this, right? That all of my children have passed through this phase. My two-year-old will pass through this phase. I can almost guarantee it. Where I am sitting in one room and I hear uh, my son go into the other room, which he doesn't realize is so close and I could still hear him and say to my, say to my wife, daddy told me I could have ice cream. Now, why does he do that? Because if he goes in there and he says, Sam says that I can have ice cream, then my wife will probably laugh and say, well, that doesn't carry any weight. Does it matter if you want ice cream or not? But when he goes in and he invokes my name, because my name carries weight with mommy sometimes. And my name carries authority sometimes. And so he uses it and thinks. And so I'm in the other room, and that makes me angry. Why? Because not just because it's a lie, but he's using me in that lie in order to get something for himself. He's taking my words, and he's, and he's twisting them. We also, we also know that when we actually do represent somebody... When we actually do represent somebody's name, that we use it in a vain way when we do things that, that bring dishonor on that name. And all of us probably learned this lesson at some point in junior high or high school. And I can remember just so plainly of the many things that I did that were ridiculous and stupid. I can remember my parents with those words that sort of echoed out just... You know, you bear our name. And when you light the cherry bomb in the hotel elevator, it makes us look bad, right? That, come, that reflects upon us and it shames our name. So we know, we, we know what this means to take a name in vain. To take it up and to use it in a disrespectful way. To take it and to use it for our own purposes. How do we use God's name in vain? Well, we have to kind of back up a little bit. And, and I hinted this, at this at the beginning. But we have to back up to creation. And we have to, we have to start there in order to see the relevance of this. 
Because God created man and He created woman and He created them, He said, in His image. And He created them with a job and He created them with a role. And that job and that role was to go into the land and be His image bearers, to reflect His glory. And so what we find that happens in the fall is that man, when he rebels against God, when he says no to God, and he, he really, what he is saying, he's saying, I want that glory for myself. I want to be the one who calls the shots. I want to be the one who rules. And so when he does that, he instantly is, he's going completely against the design for which he was made. So the law becomes this picture for Israel and for us of how we're broken. It becomes this picture to show us. It becomes like that mirror that we look into and we see because we may not even remember. We may not know. We may not acknowledge the fact that we're made in his image. And our task and our role in this planet is to reflect his glory. And the law says you have taken when you take that name and you use it in the way that you want, you use it in a way that is vain. And he says, they will not hold you guiltless for that. How do we do that now? How do we, how do we use his name in vain? We use it just for that. We use it for our own personal glory. Often. How so? Now, we live in an area, particularly of the country, where it is somewhat advantageous to associate your name with the name of God. Right? That you can associate your name with the name of God and do so in a way that people actually think more highly of you for it. In, in some ways, that's a very dangerous place to be. Because we can find ourselves using the name of God to make people think better of ourselves, but also make ourselves feel superior to other people, to make ourselves feel, feel more, ho- more holy. And so whenever we use the name of God or the things of God in order for people to look at us instead of for them to ultimately look at God, then we are using his name in vain. So that means any time we sort of drop the phrase that we went to church or we went to Bible study or we prayed because with the slightest intention in our heart, we want people to think well of us then we are taking up his name and using it in a vain way. Or what about how we use God's name to justify our decisions? That um, this is, I'll, I'll use a, a college example. I guess this is true outside of college as well, but I work with college students. And this happens a lot, I feel like, on the college campus, that we use God's name to justify our decisions. Relationship illustration. A girl is dating a guy who she no longer wants to date. And she's too scared to really tell him that he's an obnoxious jerk. And so she says, I really feel like God is telling me to break up with you. Right? You've said it before, maybe. You've heard it before, probably. Or the other way around, that, that every, all of the friends are saying, you cannot go out with this guy. He's, he's an obnoxious jerk. 
Nobody, no, we, and, and the response may be, I just really feel like God is calling me to. Now, whether or not God is actually calling them in those situations is beside the point. The point is we often take up his name to justify the decision sometimes that we already want to make. And in doing so, we're really taking up his name in a disrespectful, in a vain way. What about we use his name in vain and when we use him as a spokesman for our cause? This is sort of the same, but I'm thinking more on a grander scale. I mean, in our country, God's name is used to defend almost everything. I mean, when you think politically, God's name is, is constantly used to defend certain politics on both sides of the issue all the time. It should make us, no matter what our political affiliation is, it should make us tremble to see that happen. It should make us tremble to see God's name being used to simply support a political agenda. What about maybe the most obvious one, the way that we use his name in vain, is simply by identifying with him, by claiming his name, and then by not having it any evidence of his work in our lives present at all. By claiming his name, by, by simply putting on the Facebook status, Christian. And then there's, there's, no, there's no influence of him in your life at all. There's, no, there's nothing that, that's really at work in your life that you're claiming his name. And yet your life, everything about your life is a misrepresentation of him. That might be the most obvious thing. How do we respond to this? You know, there's no doubt that we are all that we're all guilty of this. I mean, if we simply step back like we did at the beginning and we simply step back and we say, you were made for the sole purpose of glorifying God and bearing his image faithfully. Then we've all then we're all guilty of breaking this because there there is multiple ways this morning that we have misrepresented him. And so what do we what do we do with this? What's our response uh, to the law now? What purpose does it have? I think this is where we could go in two different directions. And one direction that we could go is that we could stress that because of this, because God's name has been damaged, because you are guilty of damaging his name, we could stress and we could strive to say what you need is to be a better witness. You need to be a better witness for God. And this was when I was growing up, I felt like this was language that was definitely used a lot. And so much so, in fact, that I thought that Christianity was solely about me being a better witness. And I realized very early on in my life that if I'm the best witness God has, then he's got no hope in this world. I realized very early on that I, I was a horrible witness for him. It's a horrible representative for him. That I was a broken, messed up, selfish, little brat. And so what do we do? 
What do we do? What I did was I became a hypocrite. And so often where we respond to this by saying we, we, we put pressure on the behavior because past behavior has been bad, what we typically do is we will turn people into hypocrites. Because what I said is I don't want to be thrown out of my community. I don't want to be associated with the bad people. I know that I am a horrible representative for God. I know that my life stinks and is rotting in many ways inside. But you know what? I'm going to cover it up. And this is the definition of hypocrisy, is that on the outside we appear clean, but on the inside we are rotting away. And this is what Jesus hated most. And this is the most heinous way of breaking this commandment, is to have this outward appearance of holiness. And yet, really, on the inside, there is, there is this sin that is raging. And that we are using the name of God to hide that from other people so that people will think well of us. So the more we stress simply behavior, the more we, risk running, we run the risk of turning people simply into hypocrites and actually driving them away from what the point of this commandment is in the first place. Why? Because you cannot keep this law. You cannot keep this law. You cannot break... You you think about how absurd it is to read this, to acknowledge your guilt, and then to think, from here on out, my job is to be a better witness for God so that it makes up for the past damage that I have done. That is impossible. (laughs) It cannot happen. It cannot happen. We cannot... Read this law and walk away thinking that that's the point. Because the primary purpose of the law is to see that you are broken. The primary purpose of the law is not to fix you. If you're to look in the mirror and you're to see on your face that you have, you know, something there that shouldn't be there, it would be absurd for you to take the mirror off the wall and to start rubbing your face with it, wouldn't it? Because the mirror shows you what's there, but the mirror can't fix what is there. The mirror points you in another direction to something else that can fix it. It's the point. And this is what the law does. And if you try to use the law to fix yourself, it will just simply kill you all the more. So if the law gives you any reason to hope in yourself, then really what you should acknowledge this morning is that you're in deep denial, right? If you walk out this morning simply determined to be a better representative for God, which we all should be. But if this is what you walk away with this morning, I will be a better representative for God. Then you've utterly missed the point. Martin Luther used to say the law is for the proud, but the gospel is for the brokenhearted. The gospel is for the brokenhearted. And if you feel this morning, as you kind of think about this, if there is conviction in your heart and you see, yes, I am a lawbreaker. This is just one more way that I have broken this law. And I am a broken person. Well, the gospel is for the brokenhearted. So what is the better way? The better way is simply Jesus. The better way is simply Jesus. The reason I included this text from Hebrews chapter 1 is it's usually a text that's used to sort of answer the question of the second commandment. But I think it answers the question of the third commandment as well. Because it says, He is the radiance of God's glory. That when Jesus came 
Jesus came in the flesh as the radiance of God. Why? Because He was God and is God. And when people stood in front of Him, He said, Before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to throw at Him. Because He says, what you're seeing before you is exactly what God looks like. And what you're seeing before you is the perfect radiance of His glory. So why did He do that? Why did Jesus come and do that? He did it for you. And He did it for me. And if we read the law and we simply say, I need to be better, we will miss Jesus and we'll miss what He is offering because Jesus is saying, my Father sent me into this world to humble myself, to take on your form, the form that you marred, and to undo all the misrepresentation that you have done. Because in me... We see humanity as it was meant to be. In me, we see perfection. In me, we see the perfect image-bearing and radiance of the glory of God in the world. Let the law convict you. Let it show you your failure. But don't dare take it and run with it thinking that you can, at this point, can somehow fix it. And don't let it just leave you there in your misery either. Let it take you. Paul says it's a tutor to Christ. It takes you to Jesus. How does this commandment, I think, continue to do this? Because Jesus said he fulfilled it, but he didn't abolish it, that it's still here because we still need to see this. And so how, how now do we, we use this commandment to guide us? Not simply to just be a better person, but to take us to Jesus. I think it does that by showing us that we have to take our sin to Him. That may sound elementary. It's not in my life. Because the first reaction when I sin is still that I want to cover it up myself. I want to cover it. I don't want to turn first to Him. I I want to first at least do some sort of, you know, Something to make up for it, at least that I can offer back to Him. We make a mockery of the name of Jesus when we do not take our sin immediately to Him. Jesus is the perfect radiance of His glory. And He has done that for you. And so He says, bring your sin to Me. The way that you now honor this commandment is by pointing people to Jesus not by pointing people to you. And when we attempt to cover up our sin on our own, what we're trying to do is still point people to us. So this commandment guides us to take our sin to Him. This commandment guides us to glory in that grace. That that there is no other name under heaven by which men shall be saved other than the name of Jesus. And so when you read this commandment, your first reaction should be, thank you for Jesus and thank you for His grace. And thank you for His mercy. And thank you that there is now a way for the brokenhearted and a way for the guilty. And His name is Jesus. That this should keep us, that this should pull us from idols. All of these commandments, Brian, I know, has probably shown, are tied back to that first commandment of having no other God before you. And when you read this, this this commandment should really say how silly it would be to go to another God. 
How silly it would be to worship other things when I look now at the God who gave me His Son as the perfect representation and gave me His righteousness. It causes us to flee from idols. And then finally, I think, it's just to see that we have died with Christ. That our lives are hidden in Christ. And that we are dead to sin and alive to God. And it is now He who lives in us. See, the, the point now is that your life is enmeshed with the life of Jesus. That you are now a co-heir with Jesus. And the point of your life now is that we are now pointing people to Jesus. And the, the, the ironic thing is that often it's even our brokenness and our sin that ends up pointing people to Jesus. Because often people may look at us and see us and see us as weak and see us as frail and see us as people who have messed up in many ways. And even in that, there is an opportunity to honor the name of Jesus. By not simply hiding that, but showing the way in which that is dealt with. The law gives you another reason to see why you need Jesus And I hope this morning that the law, it kills any last hope in us that we have in ourselves. And it leaves us longing for him and it leaves us also satisfied in him. Because the good news this morning is that he perfectly represented the very nature of God and he did it for you. And then he perfectly suffered for every single way in which you have are currently or will misrepresent the name of the Father. That every way in which you have twisted and distorted His name, and every way in which you continue to and will, Jesus not only fulfilled it, but then He suffered your punishment for that. So that those of us who believe in Jesus this morning, we bear the name of a son or a daughter, We bear the name of a child of God. We bear the name of co-heir with Christ. And so we leave this morning literally with nothing else to do and for every reason to rejoice. For every reason to leave leaping and praising the name of Jesus. John Newton has this famous quote that I'll end with. He says, as he was thinking about the law, in thinking about the gospel, he said, run John run, the law, run, John, run, the law commands, but it gives us neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that this law that you have given us in grace would melt our hearts and show us our sin and bring us again to the feet of Jesus that we would leave here truly rejoicing that although we have failed, that you you have provided us with the perfect sacrifice and the perfect representative, the perfect mediator. And Father, I pray that as we leave here, that our, our role, our task would now be redefined, that we are now ones who are continually pointing people, not to ourselves, not living a life that is drawing people to look at us, but pointing people now to Jesus. And we ask this in His name. Amen.